he lured the little boy into the box and got him into a box and slit his throat as well and left him out there. Three six one seven response report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello, and welcome to this bonus edition of Coroner Talk. Today, we're going to have a very real and very raw conversation with Tamara Mickelson. Tamara is retired from Sacramento County, California, where she spent 20 years in law enforcement there, 15 years in the CSI unit. And she's going to talk today about some of the most impactful cases that she worked, some that has stuck with her and has kind of altered her and 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 something she's had to deal with for a lot of years. And so she has put this into a book called Through My Eyes, CSI memoirs that haunt the soul. And the reason why I wanted to throw this episode in, it is a long episode, and I know it comes in the middle of our themes during the month and things like that. But after you hear the episode, I think you'll understand why I wanted to put this in. It's a real conversation with a real cop who's had a real life and some horrific situations. And I think you're going to really get a lot of good out of this. Number one, if you're not 100% familiar with the job that we do, I think this will open your eyes. And if you are, then you'll find a little camaraderie here and we give some advice and some things to how to take care of yourself. So it's a great show. It's a great conversation, but it's a very horrific and hard topics to deal with and to talk about. But it is long. And so without any further delay, let's jump into the conversation that I had with Tamara Mickelson. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. All right, I'm right back with you. And joining me today in the studio, actually through the World Wide Web into the studio, is Tamara Mickelson and retired CSI, 20 years in law enforcement. Uh, Tamara, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, I really appreciate you coming on. This book that you wrote, Through My Eyes, you know, it's not, this whole show isn't necessarily about your book. It's about your job, but I do want to talk about your book later on. But what's interesting is some of the cases you worked and how it has affected you. And like I, you know, I've always said this, that police officers, firefighters, coroners, medical examiners, we all work uh, in, in the field around crime scenes. Uh, we have all those disciplines listening to the show. And we all think we know what an actual CSI uh, investigator does. In the, right. Yeah. In the end, we may not know exactly what it is, you know, especially in some areas. They got the big city cops come in and the detectives and CSIs come in and the rookie cop or whatever goes on that does does what he does doesn't really understand the scene. So mm-hmm. let's talk about some of these scenes, some of the real horrific scenes that you've worked and, and how it kind of affected you and your family and, and uh, you know, this the whole the whole career process. But before okay. we get into that. Why don't you take a minute and just tell us about who you are, when you started your career, and kind of how you've ended it, and and just just about you and your career. Okay. Well, I'm a retired sergeant from Sacramento County Sheriff's Department in Northern California. 
I put in 20 years of service, 15 of which were in the crime scene investigations unit. And before that, I served four years active duty in the United States Air Force. I went in when I was 18 and I did three years as a reserve as well. And um, I started way back in 1996 in the department. So I'm dating myself here. Um, A little over three years ago, I retired and moved to the beautiful state of Tennessee. And I recently just finished writing Through My Eyes. It's a CSI memoir filled with 11 of my worst crime scenes that still bother me today. And these crime scenes, first off, thank you for your military service. I I appreciate that. And, of course, your service in in, uh, law enforcement. Was you in uh, OSI? In the Air Force? Or was- no, no, I was not. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I did a couple of um, little stings for them. Okay. That was fun. Oh, interesting. A little undercover yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. Pretty good. So one of the things I, I kind of want to talk about here is some of your most horrific scenes that you've worked. And I know you, I think you've put 11 of them in your book, but there's um, there's some things that are Pretty interesting that stands out. I'm going to let you pick some, but before you pick one of your most important ones or, or, or highest impact, I want to talk about the your, your chapter you wrote on your first body. The first time you've seen a dead body, and we get that a lot with uh, new students and people's like, you know, how do I get over my, I want to do this job, but how do I get over my first body? You know, so so talk about that. Talk about the first time you've seen a dead body and kind of how that, how you interacted with that. Well, what's interesting about that is a lot of people want to see a dead body. Um, the, the general public is eager to see it. And it, I think it mesmerizes a lot of people. And I think because of the CSI shows that are out, everyone thinks it's exciting and it's glamorous. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's my first paragraph that I wrote in, in my book, the first dead body. It, it's kind of like when we're traveling on the freeway and there's an accident, people rubberneck, you know, that there, it's just human nature to want to see what's going on. Right. So that was me at my first dead body. I was excited. I couldn't wait to go to it. I, I, I was jealous of um, a deputy in my department that had a badge number 926 because 926 meant dead body. I mean, I look back now and I, I don't know where my mind was or why I wanted that, but it was just exciting for me. And I think it's exciting for most of the general public to want to see what that looks like and it, what it entails. But I'm here to tell you it, it's, it's not fun. It's, completely different than what I thought it was going to be. And I don't even know what I thought it was going to be. You, you, you never know until you get there, right? Right, exactly. And so, let me let me say this before you continue. One of the things that I want to point out is, you know, your interest in seeing a dead body, uh, the DSN, NV, things like that. The, what's weird is, it, it's not weird, but what people think is weird uh-huh. is actually what makes people like you and I and, you know, thousands of others do the job every day. You know, it's not that we sleep in a casket, we wear black, you know, it, it's, it's not that. We, we, don't, we right. don't cook up potions in our cauldron at home, <laughs> but we can take it. We're interested in the de- process of death. We're interested mm-hmm. in getting answers for families. We're interested right. in processing the crime scene. And might I say, and, and you tell me if I'm wrong or not, but sometimes it's that a little bit, and I'm not going to put a lot of emphasis on this, but there's a little bit of I can do this job and you can't. So I'm going to do the best job I can, but I have a skill you don't have. Because how many road right. cops out there are like, I don't want to be around a dead body. I don't want to uh-huh. see a dead body. Right. So now there's a little bit of pride. And I, I, I say that cautiously. I'm not mean we're prideful necessarily. But we have, you know, we're good at our job because we can handle it. And people are like, how do you, why aren't you wearing a mask? It's like, well, this don't stink <laughs> that bad. 
don't stink. That's horrible. But we're like, this is nothing. You ain't been to bad. <laughs> exactly. Right. And so there's right, a little right. bit of that there. So, so, you know, and when you first started out, you had to have a little bit of that. I'm sure of like, look, I can handle this. You can't oh, yeah. make you feel a little bit like you was doing a good job. Right. Right. Of course. Right, yeah. Right. So tell us about the first time you actually got to work with a dead body. Well, so, so like I said, I was excited, you know, I, I was in patrol training at the time. I just finished the Academy. I was in my three months of patrol training. My last phase, I was supposed to do the whole call by myself. Of course, I didn't handle a dead body before. So my training officer was right next to me the whole time. And this male had quit his job at his bank and went to his vehicle, did not drive home. He shot himself in the head right there in his car. And, you know, we, we didn't get notified until a couple of hours later. And so he'd been sitting there for a while, but when I got there, you know, I was excited and, um, it wasn't until I had to get super close to him for note-taking purposes. You know, I had to tuck my head and my body into the backseat of the car and I'm face to face with him, you know, because you've got to find out where the wound is and was it an entrance and an exit or did it just enter? You know, there's all those little things about about the body that you have to take notes on, right? For your report. And I was face to face with him and here's blood is still dripping from his head. And it was, it was so surreal. It was gross. And the whole time I was, I was working it. My, my mind was quickly changing from, okay, I'm not excited anymore. This is actually gross. And I feel bad for this man. So that whole time I was working that scene is when my mind started changing and things started changing within my emotions as well. It, it was just, I started feeling sorry for his family and started realizing that he was a person and it was really hard for me. And the, the next couple of weeks after that, I, I felt depressed. I mean, I couldn't even, you know, go do anything. I couldn't enjoy my normal things. I, I, I tried to be around people as much as possible because I felt lonely and alone. It was just a really weird call and a weird time for me. Okay, so going from, you know, the first time you've seen a dead body, and that, that of course, bothered you a little bit, and, of course, it does all of us the first time we see it. You know, what moved you from there to wanting to continue uh, into CSI? And not the CSI is always about dead bodies, but obviously you're around the worst of the worst all the time. So kind of what was the progression from that point forward to you deciding that you wanted to go into to CSI? Well, after I completed patrol training, uh, I had to go back and work in the jail and you have to work there until you get rotated out to patrol or CSI or canine or wherever you wanted your specialty to be. And so during my time at the jail, I ended up really liking my job. And I also went to school um, for my bachelor's and my master's while I was at the jail. And I just really, I feel I grew emotionally. I learned a lot. I discovered that I really liked my job. Um, I, I, I wanted to really learn about people. So my master's degree was in uh, marriage and family counseling. So I really learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about other people. And the more I dealt with the public, I just wanted to know about their human behavior. I wanted to know more about mental health and what causes people to do what they do and how we react and just a, a plethora of emotions. I wanted to learn all about, all about that, like psychology. So, you know, when CSI came about, the shows started, I think, in 2000. And, you know, I just, I thought, you know what, I can do this. I'm emotionally stronger now. I've got my degree, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking I'm hot stuff, like you said in the beginning. Yeah. And I thought, I, I can do this. And I can be the one that collects that crucial piece of evidence 
that puts that person away, you know, for years or for life. You know, I wanted to do that. And plus, I'm a very detailed, organized person. I'm a I'm a, a Virgo. So I'm very organized and I, I knew I could do a crime scene really well. I I just I can take it from the beginning and go to the end and 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 be very methodical and and really do a good job. And I felt I could bring something to the CSI world. So I, I guess I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's a a good progression because you got off the road, went back into jail because that's the policy of your department. And and during that time, you refocused. You you know, and and you found that. Of course, obviously, we know that the uh, the the what we call in America now the CSI effect. Uh, you know, it's where people see on TV what's supposed to be done, and in reality, what is done are two different things. Exactly. You know, but in the beginning, that's we 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 like that, or or we maybe want to go into that realm. And so you applied for and to transfer, and it was time, I guess, and then you went into the CSI unit, right? Yes, it was. It was time to rotate out to patrol, actually. And I wanted to have children, start my family, and so in patrol in my department, you rotate a lot, and you never know when you're going to work. And so I, I really didn't want that. In CSI, there was one position open. And I thought, I better grab this now or I'm never going to get it. So I had the, the chance to either go to patrol or CSI, and I took CSI. And once people got CSI, they stayed for years because it was so difficult to get the job, first of all. And everyone liked it so much because it's just, it's a good, CSI is a good gig. It really is. If, right. if you can handle the scenes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can handle the scenes. And you, and you like the detail work and the tediousness of it and the organization of it. And there's some people that don't like that. And in your case, the better ones do, you know, so, so is there any story and I've got a couple I want to talk about possibly, but, but one of the thing is in your book, you talk about several of these cases, but what is a case or a story that really sticks out to you? Tell us about the story. Give us the facts of the the details of, of the case as much as you can uh, tell us the whole story and then kind of how it impacted you and, and, and things like that. But let our listeners really hear from the moment you got the call what the case was about, what you did. Oh, my gosh. OK, I'm going to try not to cry because these are still very real for me. Sure. <laughs> um, so uh, toward the end of the book, I write about triple homicide. And after that, officer down. Those were the two that happened within three months of each other that kind of threw me over the edge. And I decided not to work CSI anymore. And I tested for sergeant and got out of there. But I'll talk about the triple homicide right now. Um, That call, let's see. So I worked from 5 p.m. I'm sorry, from 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. And it was almost time for me to get off work. And I was sitting at a a McDonald's drinking my Diet Coke. I was so addicted to caffeine, (laughs) so addicted to Diet Coke from McDonald's. And so I'm sitting there. And I'm enjoying my soda, waiting to go in to watch. And I hear this call come out over the radio um, that this man said there's, you know, his wife and his two kids were dead inside the house. And I thought, no, that's, that can't be happening. It's, you know, it's very rare that you get like a triple homicide, you know? And so I thought, no, and, and especially in the, in the daytime, that it can't be right. And I looked it up on the map and I was very close to it. I thought, oh, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm going to head that way since I'm so close. Now, in CSI, you work the entire county of Sacramento, which is huge. You don't just have a beat in one little you know, area like patrol officers do. So I was really close to the call. So I decided to head that way. Um, as I was driving there, I hear one of the officers say, we're going in t- to search the residence. And they had the male caller detained. So 
they had the father or the husband, you know, detained in the back of the car. And on my drive there, I hear them say over the radio, we have three down inside. And I, uh, I just went, wait, what? <laughs> this is real. This is really happening. Oh my gosh. And so I get to the scene. I think I was number three on two were inside. Um, and I think I was the, actually the third one there, the first CSI person and the third op, cop there. So I park my car as I'm walking up to the porch. Um, a female deputy is walking out with a, a baby, a, a live baby. <laughs> this baby's beautiful and is a little boy and he's just precious. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, they said three down inside. So who is this? And she said, this is a survivor that we found inside the house. And she just handed him to me. And there's actually pictures and video of me doing that on the news. If you Google it, you'll see that. And I'm standing on the front porch, just holding this little baby. And of course, I'm not going inside because no one goes inside at crime scenes. You know that no one, you know, once we pull out, you, you're out, you stay and you wait. Right. Right. And it just depends on the protocols too, but yeah. uh, Right. And so, and so nobody went in. I had no idea what had happened. And and I wasn't working that call. I was almost in to watch. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I am not working this call. I am not going to think about it. I'm going to compartmentalize it, put it away and not even think about what happened inside because I don't have to work the scene. And I was happy about that, but I did not have to go inside. And so Finally, you know, the whole world shows up because three people are, are down inside. So everyone starts showing up, you know, management, the sheriff, I mean, everybody's there, the media. I hand off the, the precious little baby to another officer who's just coming on his shift. And I go in to watch and I go home and I try my best not to even think about it because, you know, I don't have to work the scene. I'm relieved. I go home. I'm with my daughter. Um, I was a single mom at that time. Uh, raised her by myself. So it was purely just me and my daughter at home, just relaxing. And I had a good night and I woke up the next morning to start my shift at 5 a.m. again. And I log on my computer and I see that call still there and that my CSI partners are still on the call. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Do I have to go work this call today? So I bring up the call. I look at all the comments and I see that CSI has not even entered the house yet. And my heart just sank. I thought, oh, now I have to go do this scene all day long. So what they, what they did was they, they called out the crime lab. And they specialize in blood spatter and blood patterns. So they called them out for that reason. And they went in the house you know, overnight. And so I had to go to the scene, me and my partner. We worked that scene the whole entire day for 12 hours by ourselves with homicide detectives. And I think the worst, worst part for me inside that house, well, there are a lot of worse. I don't even know how I can put these in order. But when you walk inside the living room, you can see the kitchen and it was literally red. The whole floor was a river of blood, the whole, the whole floor. And I would I thought that is just, I've never seen that much blood in my whole life, you know, my whole career. And I see the woman lying there and two, two little children. I think there were one and two and a half for three. I can't really recall their ages at this moment, but little babies just underneath the kitchen table. And anyway, the, I think the worst, worst part for me was we were all standing there. The, 
the coroner had arrived and I had to record on video what she was doing to each body. So we started with the mom and she was putting her gloved finger inside every single stab wound. These people were stabbed repeatedly and she would put her finger inside every stab wound and, and manipulate her finger and, and move it around. And I thought, gosh, why is she doing this? You know, you can hear it. I can, I can smell the blood in the air and seeing it. I had to watch it because I had to record it on video. And she kept doing that over and over in every stab wound on this lady. And I I looked around at all my, my partners, you know, my CSI partner and the homicide sergeant and the homicide detective, and everyone looked fine. You know, they were like, okay, yeah, this is just another scene. And inside me, I was just just ready to explode. I was so devastated. And so finally, I, I remember stepping over her body, throwing the video camera down on a couch. It was still recording. And I headed to the front door. I was sprinting out that front door and my homicide sergeant grabbed me and looked at me and said, don't go out there. The media is right there. And I was like, I don't care who's out there. I've got to get out of this house. It was horrible. (laughs) And so he, he allowed me to go out on the front porch and collect myself. And I just remember falling to the, to the, to the ground and just, I was just bawling my eyes out. I, I just couldn't, I'm sorry. It was just so horrific. So how long had you been um, in CSI at work at this time? Oh, that was my, uh, I want to say that was my last year, like 14 years. I worked 15 all, all together. So that was probably the 14th year because it took a, it took a while to test for Sergeant and make Sergeant. Um, so, so what do you think this particular case, because obviously after 15 years, you worked a lot of bank robberies and burglaries mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. stolen motorcycles and whatever. But now, <laughs> of course, you know, you've seen a lot of dead people too. Why mm-hmm. this case? It, do, you, do you think it was the fact that there was mom and kids or do you think it was an, was an accumulation of 14 years worth of, I'm really kind of tired of this crap? Both. You hit, you, you just said it both. It accumulated, it accumulated and, you know, just kept going and kept going. And I didn't really get the help I needed in between all the calls, you know, emotionally and yeah, mom and kids. And, and see, I'll, I'll tell you a lot of my calls, people got shot or gang members were being shot and it was just a simple, clean wound. And I, I don't know if I can make people understand that, but when someone gets shot and they're not just bleeding out all over the floor and it's just a simple gunshot wound, it's not as gross you know, it's just a gunshot wound. Uh, um, a lot of times the, the coat or the, or the clothing they wear soaks up that blood. So you don't even really see it. Um, it's not as devastating, you know, and it's just seeing a mom and her two kids just stabbed repeatedly. And, 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 and the more, more so you're thinking in your head, how they were reacting and what they were thinking at that time. I think that that's where I went wrong. I should not have been thinking about that. But I thought to myself, what were they all doing? Sitting down at this table, having breakfast. And then this guy just comes in and starts stabbing them, a person that they know, a person that they love, you know, like what were their, what were they thinking? Like how, uh, that's where I went wrong. I should not have thought of those things. I should have just kept it professional and kept it, you know, sterile, <laughs> but it was hard to do that at this scene Well, with and, the mom and her two little babies. and. That's a double-edged sword. 
So in our industry, you know, I, I work death investigation, homicide investigator and coroner's office for years and years and years, well over 20 years, been in law enforcement, 34. And there is something to be said for compartmentalizing it. And when you get there, yeah, that's a mom and two kids, but you just you don't think about the human side of it. You you just mm-hmm. you do the job, you know, and you may break down later or whatever, but you don't think about it on the scene. And you don't, you know, were they sitting down for breakfast? What kind of fear? Who died first? What kind of horrific right. fear must the kids be going through as they're watching their mom die? And all these emotions. Don't mm-hmm. do that. But, right, exactly. But by not doing that, now you've bottled that up. Oh, your mm-hmm. mind still thinks it. It's still in right. there. Right. But it's going to come out at some point. It's going to come yes. out at dinner. It's going to come out on a date. It's going to come out something. It's going to come out. Exactly. Right. And so, again... Most people that's not, well, every person that's not in this industry in some sort of fashion couldn't ever fathom that. And so, right. and again, not taken away from your story, but, I, you know, there was a time that I had a mom mur- uh, kill three of her children, shot them individually on the on a riverbank, and then shot herself. And I understand what you're meaning. When I walked over that hill and seen three dead babies, uh, six, eight, and three, and then dead mom, I don't know if I had a homicide or what I had. It's different. I had three mm-hmm. dead kids. And then right. I do start thinking about, okay, mom mom took out the biggest one first for my reconstruction. What were the other two thinking? Right, exactly. Your your mind goes to that. Like what what was in their mind? What were they thinking that their mom was doing to them, you know, this person right. that they trust? Right. Right. And that's something again, that's where nowadays we're thinking about mental health more. We're 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 thinking about police officers and CSI techs. We're talking at coroners. We're we're mm-hmm. we're thinking about mental health because this isn't this isn't normal. We're you know it's we don't we go to war, we see our friends blowed up, we're there for a couple of years, it's horrific, it's horrible. We come home, we got PTSD. No one thinks about the person like you that's seen this for fifteen years, twenty years of death and destruction. And when you was in the jail, I mean you still dealt with you know, the worst of the worst and all of that. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah, it really, really, it really, really plays on our mind. So it does. So uh, was who, who did, was there an arrest made? Who actually did the killing? What's, what was that rest of that story? And it may still be new enough. It's not through court yet, but what can you tell us? Oh yes. It's, um, um, it was the, the father that made the phone call that said my wife and my two children are dead. It was his brother. And he hung himself in jail. So I did not have to go to court on that. So the, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of the, I'm thinking of the Soltis case. He, 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 this gentleman, this gentleman pled because I worked the Soltis case too. And I remember this gentleman, this suspect walking in the jail thinking, Hey, Soltis has nothing on me. And I thought, wow, how can he even say that? You know? So, So did the husband and the father know his brother was going to do this? How did, why did he do that? What, well, what? I I only saw a lot of news reports and I, I saw a lot of uh, family members saying, you know, he's made these threats before and I guess he had problem with alcohol and drugs as well. But they had said that he, you know, they tried to get um, him some he- some help because he was just mentally unstable and that he's made threats to the family before. So I guess it was just a matter of time that, that, this, that this would happen. You know, he, the, the, the father let this man come into their home and sleep on the couch that night. And then the next morning he let, leaves and goes to work. And that's when this happened. Can you imagine coming home from work and, and 
and knowing that your brother did this to your family, I, I can't even fathom that happening. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no way. There's no way to even yeah, understand yeah. that. So why did he not kill the baby? I, I think we all think that it was just in a, he was in a back bedroom in a crib and did not make one peep of a, of a sound. He probably didn't even know he was back there. You know, I'm, I'm sure I know he knew about the baby because it was his family. But I think he just wasn't in that immediate area because the mom and the two children were sitting at the kitchen table and they were they were eating breakfast. You can see the food all over the place. They were sitting down, but the baby was in the crib sleeping still. So, so I think the, that it, it just was, you know, it was localized. It happened all of it right there in that kitchen. And yeah. maybe he just freaked out and left. Yeah, you that's know? probably that's probably he true. stole the van that was in the garage and then left. Had mom had the baby in her arms, he probably yes. would have killed it too. I, I do think so. Yes. Yeah, that that's that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So so let me switch gears just a little bit. Uh, some of these titles, uh, of course, you know, titles are meant to be to gauge curiosity. But you have one boy in a box. Tell us about that case and how that's- long how long had you been CSI by that point and. That's the saltiest case that I'm talking about. He's okay. the other one. It's he made national news. And um I actually let's see, when that call came out, I responded to the house where um he killed his aunt and uncle in the bathtub. He, he slit all everyone's throats. And he killed the uh, the two, the niece and nephew in the front yard. And I went to that call, but I did not have to work that call. I was called away to something else at, on that day. But then a couple of days later, um, see, he had, he had taken his boy and we didn't know where he was, the little boy. So we thought, oh, hopefully he just took him and he's out of town and he's going to drop him off somewhere. But he didn't. He lured the little boy into the box, into a, in a huge field full of trash um, and got him into a box and slit his throat as well and left him out there. And... <laughs> I mean, that was the Salty's case. Anyone can Google that. It was, it was national and uh, that was such a brutal killing. And I'm really glad I did not have to work the first scene because there were four dead people at that scene. And this one, this one didn't bother me as much. Um, I think, well, it was very early on in in my career. I I was only assigned to crime scene investigations for two years at this point. And I didn't have to actually sit, you know, stand there at that scene and work those dead bodies. I didn't have to smell anything. I didn't have to get really close to the to the throats that were slit. I didn't have to endure any of that. And by the time we got out to the field, we didn't even see the boy in the box. We worked we worked hours on that on that scene without even seeing the baby boy. So the whole time we were out there, I was we were just doing shoe prints mostly and me- taking measurements and things like that. And by the time we finally got to the little boy, it was rather quick. You know, once we videoed and photographed, the coroner removed him and put him on a gurney, and they did all the the uh, forensic work back at the coroner's office. So I didn't I didn't have to do anything with that little boy, and I think that's why that one didn't hurt as much because I didn't have to you know do as much on the scene. I guess right. How and old I didn't, was I didn't old get boy? close and personal to him. How old was he? Oh gosh, I think he was three. I don't even remember now. And this was his child. This was his child. Yes, yes. He, yeah, he was three years old. So there's three. another person, you know, psychotic break or something because you kill your family yeah. and then you kill your own son and 
What's the reasoning behind all that? You know, yeah. And then he killed his wife in their own home and she was pregnant. He killed wow. seven people that day. <laughs> but like I said, this was very early on in my career and, and I, it didn't bother me. And I think it's because I didn't have to stand there for 12 hours and, you know, get intimate, if you will, with, with this, the throats that were slit and, and they will see all the blood. I didn't have to do that. Right. The boy in the box. It was a hard call, but I, I felt guilty in weeks after because I was like, well, why, why am I not being affected? Why am I not feeling as bad as I thought I should feel? You know, it was weird. It, right. Your emotions play weird tricks on you, you right, know? Right, right. But, but of course, you know, emotions are fine, but if your emotions get to the point you can't do your job, then you're ineffective. That's true. That's true. That's how I felt on the triple homicide. Right. I, I ran out and I couldn't, I couldn't do the work anymore. Thank goodness a patrol sergeant was standing in the middle of the road and he had seen me crying and he called for a chaplain and I heard him get on the radio and call for chaplain. And there were about three that showed up that day. Nice. And so after that, I was able to go back in that house and finish the job. You know, it it was chaplains are a very valuable part of law enforcement. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For sure. I want to, I want to get to the officer down call here in a moment, but before we get there, tell me a little bit about the little blonde girl. That's how you title that story. Ugh. But tell me about what is that story about? Tell us about the case. Okay. That's probably going to make me cry as well because I still see this little girl often in public and I, I won't say where, but okay. So this is my very first child pornography case. And I actually don't know a lot about the case. I'm just going to tell you about what I did at the scene. Um, all I knew was I was called by the, the child abuse detectives to respond to this rundown trailer out, out in South Sacramento. And it was dark. I remember it just being dirty and I couldn't find my way out there. And so I, I called him and had him turn on his, his overhead lights. And I, I finally see where they're at and I get there and they've got two older gentlemen um, seated in the back of their detective cars. And they said, we have a child pornography case. We need to search inside of this uh, trailer and collect all child pornography that we can find. Photograph it, video, and collect it all. I said, okay. And I had never done child pornography before. Never seen it in my life. Never done a case. And so I thought, okay. Well, I I didn't know what to expect. So I didn't know what to compare it to. So I thought, okay, here, here we go. And I walk in. And I remember it being just cramped, dirty. It stunk. Um, but those are the first you know, thoughts I have in my mind. And we were immediately in, t- in a bedroom. I guess, I guess you can call it a bedroom. We were, there was a bed there. And we turned right and walked to the living room, which was about three steps, you know, how small those things are. And we're in the living room. And he, the detective sees all these VHS tapes. And he says, well, I have to review all of these. I'm like, right now? Like, why? He's like, no, I just have to, I have to view one just to see what I've got here. And then we can collect them all. And, you know, we can do this later. I said, okay. So he puts one in and sure enough, there's all these, and it's, and it's titled something else. It's titled a movie. They've got it, you know, situated in such a way where you think it's, you know, a, a, an adventurous movie that you'd rent from a store, you know, but it's not, you put it in and there's little little, um, they they appear to be like young teenagers to me, all naked. And they're just walking, walking around a room. It was really strange. I thought, what, 
<laughs> what's the point of this? This is so weird. Um, and the detective sat there and watched it and watched it and watched it. And I said, do I have to stand here and watch or can I just go do my job? And he said, yeah, you can go, go, go start in the bedroom. So I go in the bedroom and I start, um, grabbing like containers from under the bed and from, from, um, cupboards. And I just, it's every single picture is child porn and I've never seen it before. So it just, I really didn't know what to expect or what to think about it other than it was very sad. But I come across this one picture and it was, uh, she looked like a young teenager. She had dark hair, really pretty girl. And she's, she's completely naked and she's laying across a bed, not even in a pornograph, you know, a pornographic way. She wasn't posed or anything. She was just laying on her side with her head propped up. And I thought, well, that's weird. Like, what's the point? I just, I didn't understand what the point was, you know? So I, I threw that in a bag, collected a bunch of other pictures. And and finally I get to this one and I don't know what happened to me, but I looked at this picture and it was this little tiny, maybe two or three year old blonde girl. She was so precious and she's laying on her back and she's looking up at the camera and she is just spread wide open. Her, her arms are out to both sides. Her legs are out to both sides. And she's looking in this camera of this person taking this picture of her. And t- you can see the tears in the picture rolling down her, her face, the sides of her face. You can see those. And her face had sheer terror on it. And, and when you look down at the bottom of the picture, you can see a man's penis inside of her vaginal opening. And sh- this girl's like two or three years old. She's a baby. and. I was so mad at that point. I was so mad. I was sad, mad, everything, every emotion I think went through my body. And I went, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm not looking at this anymore. I'm done. I walked out. I collected myself. I walked back in. I told the detective, look, I am not going to look for these pictures anymore. I'm just going to take every container and throw it all in bags. And you guys can search, go through it later. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I just, I couldn't do it. And every, every little blonde girl that I see that's that age looks like her <laughs> in my head. And I absolutely hate it. I hate that, that for the rest of my life, I have to see that. <laughs> and sometimes do you think that type of a case is harder than a murder case? Yes, absolutely. Because at least the murdered people are dead and they don't have to do that you know, go through that fear anymore and go through that horrific trauma that they, that they experience. It's done. It's over. And I believe in God. So they're in heaven, but that little girl that got raped that day, I, I think about her all the time. I don't know how old that picture was back then, but I wonder how old she is today. I wonder if she ever got married. I wonder what kind of life she had. And, and I think about, you know, was this a one-time event? Was this, did this happen every day? Was she sold? I mean, was she from this country at all? Or was she from a different country? So many things go in in through your mind when you're thinking about this. And then it just tears you up. Then all you're doing is thinking about this little girl, you know, instead of your own life and your own work that you have to do. It's just, ugh. Right, right. So disturbing. Right. And and I could, I know that in some, maybe everywhere, but what the child cyber sex crime and child pornography units that I'm familiar with, 
they rotate the officers out about every two years. They should. I don't know how that is everywhere, but I know the ones I'm familiar with, it's about every two years because you have to not, you know, you're seeing it on the internet, you're you're seeing actual pictures, you're working investigations, you're pretending to, you know, be somebody selling these things back and forth and buying. But of course, you've got to look at them to know that they are what they're right. claimed to be. And, right, yeah. And again, if, you know, seeing that... It, has got to do some things to your mind. You know, we we think that death mm-hmm. investigations and seeing dead people all the time affects our mind. Seeing children in those sexual situations, and, and again, it, it it's not right for a 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old boy or girl to be uh, forced sex, or whether it was forced or voluntary, it's still done for, uh, it's illegal and, it, and it's not good, and there's all kinds of reasons why it's bad. I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. taking away from that at all. Mm-hmm. But a three-year-old? Mm. Seems worse to me. Now, I don't know that it is, and I've not been a victim. I'm not saying that. Please, I don't want to get hate mail. But right, a three-year-old, right. right? there is no consent. There, There is no consent at all. There's a 15, no 16-year-old, maybe there's some consent, even if it's right. coerced or even if it's trickery. Maybe mm-hmm. it's rape, and maybe there's some consent. But a three-year-old, it is pure um. 100% abuse, evil, and forced. Evil. And that, yeah, that's the word. And that, and that has got to affect, it does me, got to affect our minds sometimes worse than if they'd slit her throat and put her in a box. Again, I don't want right. either one to happen. But like you said, a few seconds of terror and it's over. It's over, right. She mm-hmm. lives with this. If she lived and all, she's lived with this her whole life. Her whole life. Yeah. And, and so ever how long her abuse was and ever how long, but yeah, that, that's, that that's horrific. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. And again, you've seen a little bit of all of it. So so yes. um, right. So and, and many others have as well. But let's let's get into. We're going to come close on time. But I want to get into this officer down. And I really want you to talk about that case, what it was, how it affected you, and and tell us about it from the title. I obviously we're going to understand what it's about. But tell us that story, officer down. Okay. Um... I had never worked an officer down case. They happened plenty in my department, but I was never the CSI person to actually work it and to take pictures of the officer. So this was a first for me. And it was, you know, again, in my, it was three months after the triple homicide. So I was on the opposite side of the County. Remember we had the whole County to work in CSI. So I was on the opposite side and this, this happened in a different city anyway. It wasn't even my own, my own department. But I was on the opposite side of the county when I heard the officer down, and then I heard that he was shot in the head, and I I was at a burglary call at that time, and I, would, I was just going up to knock on the door when this happened, and so I, I went ahead and knocked, and I told the victim, I said, I'm sorry, I cannot do your, your burglary right now. I, 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 I will come back, or somebody will come back, but I need to go take care of a, a priority call right now, and they understood, and and so I, I started heading um, down toward the scene, which was about 40 minute drive for me because uh, it was really far away. And I was rerouted to the hospital and I had found out that the officer had uh, passed away from his injury and he was shot in the head. Um, he was from Galt PD. And by the time I got to the hospital, I just, the whole drive there, I thought, okay, how am I going to handle this? I've never taken a picture of an, of a dead officer before I've, I've worked, you know, 14 years of my job and I've handled every call I can, I can think of. And I've never taken a picture of 
an officer dead. So, so here I am, my emotions and my thinking going, okay, well, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? Well, I'll just, I'll just stay professional and I'll just keep my emotions out of it and I can do this. So I get to the hospital, I walk in, a nurse automatically points me to the trauma room. I, I go in the trauma room and I immediately see a deputy friend of mine standing outside of a, a sliding glass door of, and I, I assumed that's where the officer was inside on a gurney, but he was guarding the door. That was his job. And, and I had known this officer, the, the deputy that was standing at the door. Uh, he was in my department. So I walked up to him and I was going to ask, you know, about what happened, but he just immediately crumbled and fell into my arms crying. And that's where I lost it. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm not going to do well on this call. I look around and every single nurse, doctor, everybody in there, I swear you could have heard a pin drop. It was that quiet in there. It, it, the whole room was just for us. And it was kind of an eerie, I put that in my book. It was just eerie because it was so quiet. You know, hospitals are moving, they're going, they're, they're fast paced. You know, everyone's working and doing things. But in this trauma room, it was completely quiet. And so after he, after he uh, was done crying on my shoulder, he, he finally got out, you know, that the officer that was shot in the head, his partner walked in and had blood all over his hands. And he had to witness that. He had to see that. And he walked in crying and went to the bathroom and washed his hands. And, and so I was just listening to him tell his story of what he saw, you know, for a little bit. And then it was my turn. I had to go in and take my pictures of the officer and of his, his injury, which was a gunshot wound. So I walked in again. It was just super quiet. I walk in, I see him lying on the gurney with a blanket on top of him. And of course I don't know this officer and I'm plus he's from a, another department. And so I think I handled it. Okay. When I was in there with him, I just tried to stay professional. I tried to remember you know, I've got to take overall ranges, mid-range, and then close-ups. You know, I'm just thinking of the job I have to do and make the pictures really good and just do the best job that I can. It's all I'm thinking of at this point. And then I walk out of the room and I had to ask a nurse, where, where are his items that he was wearing? I need all, everything, his clothes and his, his uh, web belt and everything that he had, his boots, everything. And so the nurse handed me this big bag. And she pointed to an area over, over, you know, on the other side and said, you can use that whole section over there for whatever you need to do. And I said, okay. So I went over there and it really hit me when I, I sat on the floor and I had this whole area, there was no tables in there. It was just floor. So I sat on the floor. I took everything out of the bag. And as I was taking it out, I started realizing, <sighs> sorry, <laughs> I started realizing that, you know, he put that uniform on that day and no one expected an EMT personnel to rip it off of him and cut it off of him. You know, I'm right. sure he put it on that day, expecting to go back home, take it off, relax with his, with his canine dog and just relax and wait until the next work day. But here it was cut off of him and I was taking it out of a bag and going through his pockets, you know, it's like, it just became so real, you know, like this is, this is not just a crime scene anymore. This is an officer who, who was shot for no reason, you know, 
And so I started inventorying his pockets and I, one of the front pockets, I removed a lot, a big stack of his canine cards. And that's when I learned he was canine. And I, it was a picture of him, what he really looked like. And that's when I lost it. He looked so different on that gurney, you know, than what he did in the picture. Absolutely. So that, that trading card, it's a canine trading card. They canine units make them up and they give them out at public events and to kids, you know, they're happy. They're happy little cards. And I'm here holding this, these cards in my hand and I'm seeing his happy face and his dog next to him. And it's like, Oh my gosh, this, this can't be happening. You know? So that's, that made it really hard for me is just personalizing who he was. You know, I, I read about him on, on the card and finding out who he really was. And so I, I bagged it all and I did my inventory and then I, I left and I went to that memorial service because I, I felt I, I wanted, well, I heard it was going to be open casket and I would have never gone to an open casket in my life. That's not me. I don't like those, but for some reason I needed to see him as a normal person instead of just an, an officer naked lying on a gurney. I, I don't know if that makes sense to anybody, but it made a lot of sense to me at the time. And I heard that his family or his parents wanted to put a baseball cap on him. And I thought, okay, that's, that's going to be a positive thing. That's going to give me a different image of him. Right. I just didn't want the last image in my head to be of him lying on a gurney. And so I was working that day at the memorial. I drove all the way there. I get there and they close the casket 15 minutes early and I lost it. <laughs> and I, I remember I, I laugh now because it's kind of silly, but then it was completely real to me. I just laid on that casket. I, I, I just laid on top of it and I cried thinking like it was my own daughter in there or something, you know, I was just so disappointed that I couldn't see him. And so one of the chaplains that was with me, she arranged for the casket to be opened again for me. They closed it too early anyway. So I was upset about that. So they opened it just for me and I got to look in and actually see a, you know, a, a, a person, an officer look totally different than when he did on that gurney that day. And he had his cap on that they had talked about. And I won't say a smile on his face, but it wasn't, it didn't look the same as in the hospital. It was completely different. And I, this whole flood of feelings rushed over me, like a release, like, okay, I got to see him. He looks good. He's in heaven. I'm fine. Okay. You can close it and I'm good. And it was, I, I can't explain that feeling. But just, I felt so much better, so much at peace after that. And then I walked outside and they were gathering around um, where he was going to be buried. And his entire department that was there stood in a circle and they started passing this balloon around and they were writing a message to him on it. And if you weren't in that department, you kind of stood back and you kind of let them do their thing. Well, one of the uh, managers, maybe a captain, I don't, I don't remember his rank, came up to me and said, I remember you being at the hospital that day. Why don't you come join us in the circle? And that was such an honor to me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and so I did. I, I joined in the circle and I, and I wrote on the balloon and I sent it off, you know, to the next person. Then we sent it off in the air and oh, it felt so good. I, I can't explain the feelings to you. I'm just telling you what happened. So. Right. Right. And police funerals are very sad anyway. 
And this was just the memorial. This wasn't even the funeral. This was just the memorial part of it, like the open casket viewing, you know? Oh my, yeah. yeah. That's that wasn't even the funeral. The funeral was a whole nother day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> um, you know, you tell these stories and, and they're all very real and still and very raw and very real to life. I mean, we've a lot of us have experienced similar, and so we can relate to what you're talking about. But, you know, you also are a big proponent in processing the pain, you call it, or figure out... How do we process going forward? Let's talk about that. We only got a few minutes left here, but let's talk about like peer support groups and things and how have you handled starting to process what you've seen throughout your career and things like that? Well, okay. So this book was born because I was, you know, about six months after I retired is when I started having, I guess I call them PTSD moments, but I have not been diagnosed with PTSD. I just call it that because for lack of a better word, you know, things just kept creeping up in my head and I kept seeing victims from my crimes. And I kept um, like, like for, for instance, this one gentleman came to my house one day to get rid of a tree stump and he knocks on my front door and he's holding an ax in his hand. And my mind immediately springs back to an axe murder that I worked for 12 hours. So just little things like that kept just popping in my head and uh, it was driving me crazy. It's like I had this false sense that once I retired, I would not think of crime scenes ever again. I, I had a totally miscon, uh, misconception of that. But it happened more because here I am at peace now and I'm retired and I'm slowing down and life is good and I'm not putting that uniform on every day. But but they started creeping back in my head. So what I did was, you know, having my master's in counseling and marriage family therapy, I started researching online. Well, what, what, what can I do besides going to a counselor? What can I do to work all these thoughts through, work, work through my thoughts? And one article I read said, just start writing. It uses a different side of your brain and it helps with the healing. So I thought, okay, I can do that. That's easy. You know, so I just started writing my worst crime scenes. Everything that popped into my head, I just wrote about. And all of a sudden, I thought, I'm writing a book here, and it could possibly help other people. Other officers can read this and think that they're not the only ones going through this pain. They're not the only ones seeing what they're seeing. And maybe they can read a story and relate you know, to what I went through or what I, you know, how I handled it, how I didn't handle it. And also, I wanted the citizens out there to read this and and know what we really do go through, what we really do see and feel and touch and smell. And I don't know if I've processed the pain. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, uh, oh, I'm, I'm done now. I wrote my book and I'm finished. That's, that's not even close. This is just a tool that I, that I used and I'm still using to process my pain. And, and I actually sit down and reread my story sometimes. I know that's weird, probably. Um, but I want to see if I can get through a story without crying, you know, and I didn't handle things well back then. I, I told myself, just shut it off. Just become numb. Don't think about it. And you'll be able to get through. Well, that's the worst thing you can do. <laughs> it's okay to do that while you're at the scene because you've got to get the job done. But days following that scene, you've got to talk about it. You've got to talk to a best friend or a chaplain or your spouse or just get it out. You've got to talk about it because that was, that's the problem, not talking about it. Absolutely. And it just builds up and builds up and builds up. So if I can go back and do all this over again, I would have talked more about it out loud and wrote about it as well because I didn't, I didn't write about it back then. And I would have got it out just 
got it out. And peer counseling is important. At, at the latter part of my career is when I was asked to go into peer support and I, I accepted it. And I said, yes, I, I want to be a peer counselor. I think that's important. And I went to the formal training and that's when I realized that I was going through so much pain and so much trauma because you learn about it. You know, I was learning about the process and I thought, wow, this whole, this whole time I, I haven't even been handling this the way I'm supposed to be handling it. So that kind of opened my eyes, you know, to how you process the pain, but I'm still processing it. I'm going to process it forever, but at least I've got it down, you know, in words now. And I reread my stories and I talk about them. I'm talking about them now. Every time I do that, I think it helps a little more, you know, with, with the process. I really do. So I hope I answered that question, how I process the pain. I'm still processing it. No, I think you answered it perfectly. And, you know, you haven't been diagnosed with PTSD, but I guarantee you have secondary traumatic stress, secondary PTSD, compassion fatigue, whatever. It's, there's so many things it's called. Right, but right. no one can work this career as long as you did, as I have, that a lot of these uh, people have been in the career for a long time and don't suffer some of that. And and I try to talk about that often on this show and I try to teach on it as much as I can, at least work it into uh, – if I'm teaching on infant and child death, I try to work in a, at least a few minutes on processing your emotions and things like that because mm-hmm. you're right. We do have to shut it down at the scene. And we don't always have good outlets. You know, you talk about, you said something about talking about the cases, and I do agree that we want to talk about those cases. But sometimes we're restricted on what we can talk about and who can, who right. we can talk to because it's a, you know, it's a criminal case. Yes, exactly. So, you know, we, we I, I promote having friends outside of law enforcement because I think that you ought to have some friends that you go do things with that are not law enforcement or coroner related. Right. Although, that's always that's kind of tough because a lot of times our circles are just within the same barrel. Right. But, you know, you go fishing with a neighbor that is that, you know, that happens to be a, a banker and your neighbors and you get along well and, and he has the boat and you have a fishing pole. So you guys go fishing <laughs> a lot. But uh, you really can only very minimally talk about the cases you worked this week. Right. Because he's not part of it. And, and your spouse. Well. Sometimes you can talk to your spouse about, hey, I've had a bad week. Let me process this. But you can't always get into details because, number one, again, you're dealing with a case you can't talk about. And number two, either A, your spouse doesn't want to hear right. about right. it. That's what I was going to say. Okay, because they don't, they don't want to experience it and they don't want PTSD from it. And then number two, right. depending, like, like a, certainly from a man's perspective, uh, now, my wife was in law enforcement for a few years, so it's a little bit different. But from a man's perspective, do I want to traumatize my wife by talking to her about a three-year-old with a slit throat in a box? Exactly. I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I might have to process, hey, I have a child case today. It was a horrible child case. And, I, you know, maybe process some of that. But see, there is the problem. You're right. We have no real way to process outside right. of maybe peer support group, chaplains. And there's a lot of small agencies in, in the country that do not offer that exactly yes and so that's something I, I that, that, that i think needs changed and, and i've said it a bunch and i'll say it again i think that counties across america counties and cities and small areas need to band together and come up with a regional support group and a regional counselor my old thought was you know, departments pay a little bit for every how many officers you have, get mm-hmm. five or six or seven departments together, 
hire a counselor, have a counselor on call through Zoom and Skype and things like that, video conferencing, go to the office, whatever, keep it very, very um, confidential. Mm-hmm. And and again, no department has to pay a lot, but if an officer needs to, hey, they can make an appointment with the counselor and it can be at home privately on a video chat and that does good good as well and the department never knows about it. Because the department said, well, we can't afford to hire a counselor or have that. Yeah, but you can have a chaplain. Mm-hmm. But also, I think these regional regional counseling things might be an answer, but something's the answer. Some, I mean, some, you had support. You had some support you go to. Sacramento is a big place. But yes. a lot of these people listening, they're like, I would love to talk to somebody, but we ain't got nobody. And I can't, my insurance don't pay for it. And I can't afford right. to do it on my own. And there's only so many people I can talk to. And so, some that, that have true. a religious belief, a religious faith, may talk to their own pastor or chaplain or, or, or something like that. But some that doesn't have an affiliation with some religious faith are really stuck. You're right. You're right. <laughs> So and like where, it's not this, where do they go? Where do they turn to? Right. Where do they turn to? And so, and again, I think a regional thing might, might help. But so, Tamara, we're coming close on time. But my lands, the stories, just just those stories. And you've had 15 years worth of those stories. Those stories were very, yeah. very impactful. Uh, I know that you again, you brought light to the problem that I wanted to bring light to and and a little insight into into the job. But. Of course, you have put this into a book, and it is available. The full stories, many more stories than what we talked about, uh, real-life stories. Uh, What's the name of the book that you wrote? It's titled Through My Eyes, CSI Memoirs That Haunt the Soul. And it's available on Amazon, I'm sure. And Barnes & Noble, yes. Yeah, and is it in hardback, paperback, Kindle, all? It's in Kindle and paperback. Okay, okay, perfect. Well, it's a fantastic book. It's uh, true stories are amazing. Uh, I appreciate you writing it. I know some of it might have been a little bit, um, you know, for your own mental health sake of writing it. But I think it's good that you now you can help other people by by reading and seeing those same stories. I really hope it does help people that if, if, if somebody would write me an email and say, I read your book and it helped me. Do you know how impactful that's going to be? Absolutely. Just, just one person, if it helps that one person and then maybe. Maybe they can be there for another person, you know, that that would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And for any of our listeners, you know, if you didn't catch a how to get it or name of it or whatever, again, just, just go to the show notes of this episode. If you're on your mobile device, swipe up, show notes are there and the links will be there. You can link over and get a copy of her book or, or find out more about her and things like that. So. All right. So do you have a public email that is attached to your book, a Facebook page or something like that, that you would want to give out? to several thousand people yet or, or or not? No, that's fine. So so I also run the website and the social media site, Thin Blue Line for Women. So they can get a hold of me at Thin Blue Line, the number four women at yahoo.com. Okay, perfect. And, yeah, Thin Blue Line, the number four women at yahoo.com. That's perfect. That's perfect. Well, Tamara, thank you again for coming on and, and pouring into our listeners. I very much appreciate it. And again, thank you for writing this book and sharing your thoughts. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue. 